Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. All right, we're going to continue in our series in Esther, and I'm going to read the Bible for us now. Um, and the Bible reading, so where we're up to in the story, we're going to pick it up where uh, the Jewish people are still under a death sentence, and uh, we're going to find out what happens next. So I'm reading from, or we're reading from chapter 9 in Esther, verse 12 to 17. If you've got your Bibles there, I encourage you to open them or to be on the screen behind me. We're going to pick it up in chapter 9, verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadels of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened... On the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Thanks, Ben. Morning, everyone. This is, uh, hopefully, got your interest. Lots of um, sadness, lots of death, lots of bloodshed as we get to the end of Esther. Uh, But really important lessons, how God reveals himself and his character to us. And I'm going to pray now that God might help us to understand who he is particularly through his word. Please pray with me. Dear Father God, we just thank you that you are a big God. We thank you that we can come here gathered together and you do speak to us as you promise. You do meet with us. And Lord, uh, some of this stuff sounds very confronting, but we do pray that you'd help us to understand who you are and how we can worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been on a five-week journey through the book of Esther. And Esther is an Old Testament book of the Bible that is a little bit like Disneyland comes into the Bible where they cross over. Uh, And how, if you've been on the journey and you've seen Queen Esther come from a nowhere little peasant girl uh, to be queen, you've kind of cheering for her as queen and you hope for that happy ending. Like all Disney stories, yeah, she's sitting in the window with her hair coming down, Uh, outside, reigning over her people, loving them. But this is not how it ends. This is the Old Testament version of Disneyland, you could say. Uh, You've got a king, King Xerxes, who is uh, looking for a queen. The queen, the little Jewish girl, Esther, becomes queen. We have a villain called Haman, and he hates God, he hates the Jews, wants to kill them. And it ends up to be this big battle of the good and the bad, where they all come together. And in the end, as we just read, 
the bad are killed. The villain, his 10 sons, 500 men in Susa, 75,000, 300 more in Susa. There's bloodshed. So the, it ends with the queen and the Jews turning to celebrate and party. It's their turn. Does this happen by chance? Well, the book of Esther doesn't talk about God, but it also talks about nothing happens by chance. All this has happened under the hand of God. It's not the kind of Disney ending that we might have hoped for. In fact, I think we need to call it and be honest. This makes us feel pretty uncomfortable that this is even in the Bible. It's one of those uncomfortable moments that this is, you'd be okay if it wasn't there. It's one of those uncomfortable moments if you're a fan of Will Smith and then uh, he goes into the ceremony and slaps Chris Rock and if you're a fan of Will Smith, you go, oh, I wish he didn't do that. If you're a fan of the royals, when Prince Philip met up with a group of Aboriginals and asked them, did they still throw spears at each other? It's like, oh, did you have to do that? What were you thinking? And if you got excited about Esther, you start asking questions. Is this a God I can trust? Is this a God I want to follow? That he would do things like this? If you got excited about Esther in the first couple of weeks, and let's... I, I really enjoyed the first few weeks. It was a lot of fun getting into the background, looking at people's, who they are and how God works in these moments. It was a lot of fun. And if you handed the book to your non-Christian friends, oh, you've got to read Esther. We're doing it at a church. This is awesome. And they come back to you and they said, I'm not sure whether I want to follow a God who just goes around killing people. A God that seems very violent and aggressive, that he takes his anger out on other people. I don't know whether I want to follow a God like that, do you? And it makes us wonder, sitting here in the 21st century, makes us wonder, can you trust a God that allows this to happen? Is this a reason not to trust him? Do I want to follow a God who looks dangerous, looks violent, and in a sense looks unloving? it makes us confront a whole bunch of things about God's character by the time we get to the end of this book. So to make sense of this, because we're not going to bury it and pretend it's not there, we're going to look at it from three different angles. Through their world, we need to understand what was going on in their world. We need to understand how it appears from God's perspective, through God's world, and what does it mean for us in our world? What does it mean for us today? So three different angles that we're coming into it. So what led to this moment in their world? Well, we had, we've met King Xerxes uh, a number of times. He's all through the story. Uh, he's the ruler of the Persian Empire, a historical figure. It's very close to 460 BC. The historians can line this story up of what was going on in the Persian Empire. King Xerxes is a real figure. We also met a guy called Haman. Haman is often introduced as Haman the Agagite. Now, there's a bit of stuff we need to find out about his background there, but his particular family heritage means that he hates God and hates the Jews, hates God's people. And we can see it because it was Haman that went to the king to work out this edict. He wanted to wipe out all God's people. And the edict that went out was the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. Did you get that? Just, not just once. Destroy kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, 
on a single day, we're just going to wipe them out and to plunder their goods. This is an edict that the king put out as a law for the whole country, his whole kingdom. The Persian Empire at that time had almost half the world's population in it. We're going to exterminate the Jews, annihilate them. And how did that go down? Uh, couriers went out. The king and Haman sat down to drink because they were pretty pleased with this new law they'd put out. But the city of Susa, this is their capital city, was bewildered. It's not just an obvious thing, you know, the Jews are all terrible people, let's take them out. It's actually, what is going on here? There's a sense of unjustness within this law that they'd put out, that the Jews were now on a death sentence. How did the Jews respond to this? Now, we met this guy, Mordecai. He was in ashes and sackcloth. Mordecai is uh, Queen Esther's adopted dad. So we heard about him being in grief. But in every province within the empire to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, you could just imagine across the empire. Now, the Jews were a minority there. They weren't a big force. But they were on death row. It was very, very real. It's easy for us to sit here in the 21st century and go, oh, yeah, we know how it ends. It'll all be fine. No, no. They were going to die. They were going to be killed. It was very real for them. And it became a very real question to ask then, if they follow the God of the Bible, where is God? Where is God? Because in these Old Testament times, God was showing up with earthquakes, he'd strike people down with lightning. Sometimes he'd open up the earth and people would fall into the cracks of the earth and be killed. God would deal with his enemies very aggressively, supernaturally, in miraculous ways. But in this time, God's nowhere to be seen. He's hidden. He's silent. But then as the story unfolded, we saw how there was all these just-so-happened moments. It just so happened the king was angry with his queen, got rid of his queen and needed a new queen. It just so happened uh, that he decided to put on a beauty contest. just so happened that Esther was beautiful and nice in character that she won the contest. This young Jewish girl, it just so happened to become queen of the Persian Empire. just so happened when Haman put out his laws that, that the queen had access to the king. Just so happened that when the queen approached the king very dangerously to say, why are you killing, I want you to save me and my people, the king got angry and stormed out. Haman started begging at the queen's feet for his life. But just so happened the king walked in and thought Haman was molesting his queen. That was the end of Haman. Just so happened. These moments. Where is God in all this? It's like God is putting these things all together to get justice to get what's right to happen. God is certainly there, even though they can't see him. So then we get to the point where the queen says, look, how are we going to save these people? This is where we're up to in the story this morning. And the king says, well, I can't get rid of the edict that I'd written before. Once a king writes an edict, cannot be revoked. I'll tell you what I can do. I can write another edict to say the Jews can protect themselves. And here's uh, just some of that. Uh, to protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them 
and their women and children and to plunder their property and enemies. It's a bit of a reversal from what we saw, the other edict. If they come to attack you, you have the right to defend yourself, to even kill the enemies. And you can also, in it's Old Testament days, days it's 460 BC, if you were to, to conquer another people, you can plunder their stuff. You can take their, you can take their stuff. And that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. They are allowed to defend themselves. The enemies of their enemies, which are enemies of God. This was going, this was allowed to happen. So it sets up this great battle on this one day that this is all going to take place. It feels like a battle of between good and evil, between God's people and God's enemies. And who's going to win? So there's this anticipation of how is this going to turn out? We can see God's involved, but they haven't got victory yet. How is this going to play out? And some interesting things happen. You've got the Jews, a minority group. You've got God's enemies, uh, whether they're Agagites, um, Ammonites, or all these other people who hate him. But there's all these bystanders. What are the bystanders doing? A couple of little things. Um, that's, that's mentioned in 8.17. It says, many of the other na- nationalities became Jews. They saw what was going on. Are we going to be on God's side or are we going to be against God, his enemies? And they, they chose to become Jews. Uh, and elsewhere, it's all the nobles and of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews, all the high-ranking guys, seem to see there's something going on here, something that's unjust, and they're going to align themselves with God's people. There's something that's not just good and evil, but there's just and unjust. And it feels like a lot of the people in power, a lot of the crowd, are aligning with God's people. This is the lead-up to the big day, and we're still wondering how it's going to play out. So we hit chapter 9 from verse 12, where we picked up, Uh, the reading before and this is the result the jews have killed this is the king giving a report to esther his queen the jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 and the 10 sons of haman in the citadel of susa in that city so just in that city 500 men haman had already been killed now his 10 sons have been killed now what is your petition it will be given to you what else do you want queen i'll give it to you she goes on, she replies, if it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. Okay, we've had the one day of battle, we've wiped out 500 of our enemies, but actually can we do this again tomorrow because there's still more enemies we didn't get to. And also, let Haman's 10 sons, even though they're killed, be impaled on poles. Haman uh, was such a nasty man that he built this 20-metre pole in his front yard to put Mordecai the Jew, Esther's adopted dad, he was going to impale him in his front yard. Now, what ended up happening is Haman got impaled on it. It sounds like the ten sons all got impaled on it as well. Just as a sign, they used to do that. This was accepted Persian torture punishment and a notice to everybody, don't mess with us to impale them on poles. Esther, if you thought Esther was that sweet little Jewish girl, uh, when you read this, you go, oh, there's another side to this girl. But you can see what she's doing. She's like, the enemies of God must be destroyed. 
They must be destroyed. And this is how it continues on. They impaled the ten sons of Haman. They put to death in Susa 300 more men this next day. But the remainder of the Jews who are in the king's provinces over the rest of the kingdom killed 75,000 of them. But then they were able to rest. The Jews were able to rest and made it a day of feasting and joy. Now, I'm not sure what unsettles you the most out of this, the amount of bloodshed, uh, putting the guy's ten sons, impaling them on poles, or the fact that they've done all this killing, they've got blood on their hands, and now they're sitting down to party. They're resting, they're celebrating. There's lots of things to go, I get it, this is pretty normal stuff when a nation conquers another nation in those days, this is 460 BC, that they plunder their property and just celebrate. They indulge in what they've conquered and what they've captured. But this is God's people. God's people are celebrating, what it seems, the downfall of others and sitting here today, kind of, does that sit right with us? Does that sit right with us? They seem to think it was right back then, what about us today? Let's have a look at this from God's perspective. Let's have a look at this from God's world. See, there's a number of clues that are dropped into this story that this victory wasn't about one nation over another group of people, but it was about justice. It was about taking out evil. It was about dealing with what was wrong. And we see that through a number of different things. So for Haman... Haman was always introduced as the Agagite. Uh, so in 924, um, this is how he's often introduced. Uh, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews. A bit of backstory, he's not just some random guy. See, back in the time when the, the Jews, God's people, were coming out of Egypt into the Promised Land walking through the desert, they were marching through and as they would do as a big community, you'd have your soldiers up front to take, take out any, anything that's going to put their people in danger. Uh, in the middle were the bulk of the, the women and children and often it's the sick or the elderly or the young left at the end, just sort of trailing behind, trying to keep up. Now, um, the uh, Ammonites are another group of people that were living there. Instead of that, like, they hated God, they hated God's people, but instead of attacking their army to try and wipe them out, they come from behind and just started killing God's people from the weakest, the elderly, the poorest, and started going from the back. And it's just not right. That's not how they, it, like, even in those days, they had some ethics around battlefields. But that stirred up God. It's like, you can't do that to my people. And they didn't repent. They didn't say sorry but they hated God, they hated God's people, they would do anything, even if it was unjust, to take them out. Now, of the Amalekites, this group of people, one of their kings was called Agag. So, if you've got the worst of the worst people, their king is the worst of the worst of the worst, uh, the king, the uh, king Agag. Now, this is where the Agagite thing makes sense. Haman is an Agagite, he's not just an Amalekite, part of the bad people, He's in the line of the bad king. He's the bad of the bad, the worst of the worst. He's the one who hates God, actively hates God's people. And he's a, clearly an enemy of God. And how this plays out is that he's an enemy of the Jews. He's plotted against the Jews to destroy them. 
and had cast purr. This is a bit of a summary at the end of the book. Cast purr, cast a lot. It's like, I'm going to wipe them out. I've got that under control. For Haman, he is what you might call their prime minister. He's the king's right-hand man. He had all the power. He makes all the laws. He had all the influence to do this. He had that bit under control. I'm going to take out the Jews. I've got an edict. I'm just going to leave it to chance the day. What day is this going to happen? I'll cast a lot for their ruin and destruction. And this is the tension in the, in the whole book of Esther. Is there chance? Is it just up to casting lots? Or is there a God who's in charge and a God who eventually conquers uh, what Haman was trying to do? So in God's world, he sees Haman the Agagite, the guy who rejects God, hates God, and plays that out by hating his people. He's an enemy of God, and God won't tolerate it. He won't tolerate it. And it's not just for Haman. We go on, and there's this repeated uh, line of their enemies or their haters. So for 8.13, the Jews who were to avenge themselves on their enemies, 9.1, on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables will turn. The Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. 9.16, protect to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. These aren't just bystanders. They're not just people just watching on, innocent people that are being killed. They're God's enemies, people who reject God and hate God's people. And they're in the firing line. They're against God, against the Jews, so now God's turned the tables on them. And it's not about what we think of in those days, one nation conquering another nation just to benefit, like to take their plunder. There's also another repeated line about uh, them killing, attacking, and the, uh, well, in the edict, they were allowed to take the plunder of the property. But then we see 9.15, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Verse 16, they killed 75,000 but did not lay hands on their plunder. It was never about the plunder. It was never about benefiting themselves. For the Jews, they could see they were God's agent in dealing with the evil in the world, dealing with the sin, dealing with the rejection and anger against God. They were God's agent by that. And after all that happened, uh, it w- after about this um, doing justice with God on their side, the victory is about deliverance. So we get to this summary, verse 22, the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month, uh, it was a month when the sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. These guys have been on a serious journey. They're not just celebrating, hey, we've just killed all these people. They're actually celebrating the fact they were on death row. They were the ones, the righteous, the good guys were going to be killed. But now the tables turned. God did show up. God did answer their prayers. And now they can find peace. They, turn, they can have joy. Their enemies are gone. Evil had been dealt with. And it was a day of celebration. Didn't happen by chance. They're celebrating the fact that God delivered his people. That God does care. So Esther is a big le- lesson about God always saves his people. Through God's eyes, taking a step back, this was about dealing with justice, dealing with evil. But in a sense, 
there's been hints along the way that this was always going to happen. There's a couple of lines. If you've been on the whole journey with us, there was a couple of verses. You go, hey, what does this mean? How is this catching up? Now it kind of makes sense. There's this speech from Mordecai to Esther, Esther's uh, foster dad to her, encouraging her to step up, that God might have put her in this place as queen just for this moment to have an influence. But he says, even if you don't do it, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Sure, we might die, your family might die, but God always delivers his people from somewhere else because that's who God is. That's his character. There's another line from an unexpected place when Haman, the evil guy, uh, comes home and he's really agitated what Mordecai has been doing. And he comes home and his wife and friends say this line, Since Mordecai, before your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. This is before anything really bad happened. They can say, he's a Jew. He follows the God of the Bible. This is not going to turn out well. They can see that because God is faithful to his people. He delivers his people. So from God's perspective, this was all about protecting his people. A parent protects their young. It's also God dealing with sin, people who are fighting against God, people who are resisting him and won't submit to him. He's going to deal with the evilness, the wickedness in the world. That's from God's perspective. He's dealing with the rejection. So that's uh, from their world, from God's world. What does it mean for us in our world? So when we have a close look at that, we are sitting some 250,000, 2,500 years later. That sounds more accurate. Um, we are in a different world. So what has this got to do with us? There's lessons for them. They lived it. They experienced it. They learnt from it. What are we to do with it? There's three, there's three things that we can make of this. The first one is Esther should, the book of Esther should make us sit in awe of God. The hidden God, he's always at work with his people. See, when it comes to the question, can he be trusted, can he be believed, is, how do I know that he's on my side, this book assures them and us that he is living, he is active. There's some ancient writings, Jewish writings, that happened soon after this book of Esther, but before Jesus that talked about when these events in Persia happened, it changed the way the Jews understood God and worshipped God. Before the book of Esther, it talks about how the Jews followed God because of amazing miracles. You know, Old Testament times. When God would do these amazing things, they would go, yeah, he is uh, worth following. He is awesome. Um, that, that they have a healthy respect, you might say, for God if you can do supernatural things. But since the book of Esther, since those events, they come to understand they don't just follow God for his amazing miracles, but they follow God for who he is, for who his character is. He's always faithful, always in control, always at work, always working with his people to to bring them home. He's always there. Whether you see him or don't see him, that's just who he is. So they can follow him because of that. Now, I think that's a bit true for us. 
So if your God that you follow, the God of the Bible, but if your image of God is the one who's always going to be there for me because he's always going to do miracles for me, he's always going to fix my work situation or my career situation, he's going to uh, fix my family situation, give me the best family with the best kids, he's going to fix up my finances, God's going to bless me with all this stuff and God's just going to fix up all my issues in life, that miracle after miracle, but all of a sudden when we can't see him, cracks start to show in that faith, in that belief. Where is my God? He's let me down again. He's hidden. I can't see him. But if we see God for who he is, who the Bible shows he is, he's a God who's all faithful, all holy, all powerful, always at work in your lives, always doing good, always dealing with justice. That's who he is. So in moments in life where you go, I'm not sure what God's up to, he's hidden, we know, no, no, he's always there. I see it through Esther, I see it through the Bible and I know there'll be a time where I can see it in my life too because that's who he is. There's a difference, isn't it? A God who does miracles and I follow him for what I can get out of it versus a God that he just is. And he's, we should sit in awe of who he is and trust who he is. There's a difference. See, can you see the God of the Bible is a perfect and holy God who doesn't mess around? He is the God you can trust. He is the God you can feel safe with if you're a follower. He's a God that you don't want to fight with him, but you actually find security in him when you turn to him, sit in awe of him. That's one lesson we see in Esther. Second lesson is Esther should make us feel the weight of sin. Sin is offensive to God. If God is this big, holy, pure and perfect God, any sense of rebellion, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm going to go my own way. You're enemies of God and God won't tolerate that, that we all will be judged. It's, it's, as we move into the New Testament after Esther, we see Jesus actually being very divisive, causing two groups of people. There's a group of people that trust Jesus, that's God's son. And Jesus said, you will be taken to that great day of celebration. After the big judgment day, there will be a celebration in heaven with a great banquet, a little bit like what we saw in Esther with the Jews, finding peace with God and they celebrate with that banquet there will be that day for us too when we trust in God. But then there's the other side of those who don't sit in peace with God. They're happy to dwell in their sin, the rejection of God. And it's very clear that Jesus says sin leads to death. We saw it in Esther. Evil, rebellion will lead to death. Same with Jesus. You keep fighting God. You keep rejecting him. There is no winner for you. God always wins. You can't take him on. Just as Esther, in Esther though, there are many people aligned themselves with God. They became Jews. They became children of God. It's not as if it's too late. It's actually a call to repentance, a call to come and join God. It's actually, so in the book of Esther, it's about 460 BC. After that, 
God doesn't communicate a lot with his people. There's not much written in the Bible from 460 BC to the time Jesus turns up. One book, Amos, is the only one that's written after that. So you get this event. Lots of people are killed for their wickedness and evilness against God. Lots of people die. But then there's this, well, the story after story, reminder after reminder, this turns into an annual festival of a reminder of God's going to deal with wickedness. God's going to deal with evilness. God's going to deal with sin. Where do I sit in that? And then it's a great story. I don't think we appreciate until we get the context of this. When John the Baptist turns up, he's wandering around the countryside preaching a message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You're not left out in the cold. You're not left facing God's wrath for this. You can repent. You can turn. Repentance just means turning. Turn from your ways, your sinful ways, fighting against God and start following God. Let go of the sin and start following Jesus. Because John the Baptist is there to introduce Jesus. He sees Jesus and says, here comes the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is going to die for our sins. So when we let go of our sin, it doesn't just disappear, oh, it's all right. We've offended God, offended him deeply, and God's wrath will come down on either us or Jesus comes along, the Son of God, in perfect, lives a perfect life, perfect obedience, perfect relationship with the Father God, and dies on the cross that's where we have the opportunity to lay our sin at the foot of the cross to Jesus, to repent, to turn, for him to take away that punishment that's sitting above all of us. We need Jesus. We can never be good enough. In the context of history, this is a fantastic message. They are seriously confronted by death, sin equals death, but here comes Jesus. I need to repent. I need to cling to him. I need to trust in him. But the question is then, in this world, are we comfortable with our sin? Because, I don't know, sin's easy. It's fun. I'm not hurting anyone. I just want to live my life my way to get my joy and my happiness. I don't, surely God understands that. But if we understand how big God is, how holy, just and righteous and pure God is, God's not going to tolerate that, that he will punish that. But there's an opportunity for us to repent when we feel the weight of our sin, when we see a big, holy God, we need to repent. We need to cling to him. We need to trust in Jesus to find that peace. I'm not sure whether you've done that before, but it's something we need to do continually, to feel the weight of our sin, to feel how great, awesome and holy our God is. We're going to do Lord's Supper after the talk here. It's an opportunity to reflect on Jesus, what he's done for us, and to align with Jesus. Maybe today's the day. Today's the day. We're going to start taking him seriously. So Esther makes us feel the, sit, sit in awe of God, uh, the book also makes us feel the weight of sin. But Esther should also motivate us for mission. Because when we see God is serious, he's not going to muck around with sin, with evil and rejection, that he will judge it. When we get that image through uh, Jesus talking about that judgment day, when he does come to divide people for him or against him, he's serious. 
He's not messing around. But we live in a community who are far from God. And there's no reason for them to reject God. There's no reason for them not to find peace, not to find that safety and security in Him. We have the words of eternal life because we do believe what the Bible says about sin leads to death is real, that heaven and hell is real. But also God's grace and forgiveness is also real. That when he talks about finding peace with God, finding joy in God, that is real. Finding life in him. We don't want anybody to miss out. People don't have to face God's wrath. They can trust in Jesus and find the joy he offers. So here at Southside, we we use this phrase a lot and it drives our mission and everything to do. We make and grow disciples of Jesus. We do that for a reason, because he's the only way people have life. We want to reach our community. We pray for 1%, a thousand people, that God would use us in that mission to see more people come into the kingdom. It's not about, we want more people to join our club because it affirms us and how good our club is. It's not about that. It's not even us wanting to be a big church because big church makes us sound important. It's not about that at all. But if it's about seeing more people coming into the kingdom, more people finding peace with God, that's what we're about. That's what we're about. Because God is serious about this stuff. We want to make and grow disciples. We put lots of energy into our kids' ministry, our youth ministry, our growth groups, our adults, doing Alpha Course uh, every term we run that because we want to see more people come into the kingdom. Wouldn't it be great that as we're sitting here that every seat is filled with people coming to know Jesus, coming into the kingdom, Make and grow disciples. Wouldn't it be great is when we start a second service that it fills up, a third service that it fills up. Wouldn't it be great if more and more people come to know God's peace, his love and not his anger because they're enemies of God. Maybe God has put us here in a place like this just for a time like this that we can reach our community for him. God is all powerful. He can do these things. Making growing disciples of Jesus is the most significant thing we could ever do there's lots of good things in our world we can do lots of great medical things we could do lots of great ways we can help the poor lots of great ways we can help our our um our world great things to do but this is the best thing we can do to see more and more people come to know him because jesus uh, is the only way i'm going to pray now and pray that we do take god seriously Sometimes we treat him like a joke, but now's the time we want to get serious with him. If you want to pray that prayer with me, I want to invite you to do that. After that, though, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is the bread and juice, which points us back to what Jesus did for us. And through what Jesus did for us, it does give us safety and security and a reason to celebrate, celebrate the fact that we can be a part of his kingdom forever, for all eternity. I'm going to invite you to pray with me now. Dear Father God, we just thank you that through a story that that appears um, so harsh for us to sit through, that we can see your love through that, your grace poured out onto your people, the way you're faithful to them, the way you protected them, and your hate of evil, your hate of those things who fight your ways, and to see your awesome power in, in bringing them to destruction. Lord, as sobering as that is, we can see that you are serious about sin. 
that you are so holy and pure, that you invite us into your world by trusting you, by saying no to our sin, by repenting, letting it go, turning to Jesus. Lord, we want to do that today. We know that we can't do it. We know that we need to trust in you. Lord, give us the humility to do it. Lord, let us let go of our sin. Lord, we're never going to be perfect, but we thank Jesus that he stood up and took the cross to die in our place. Lord, we're sorry that we often treat you as a joke, something on the side of our lives and not the centre of our lives. But Lord, help us, transform us, Lord. Give us your spirit to find that joy and peace in following the true and living God, the God of the Bible. So Lord, help us to see you clearly when it's hard to see you. Help us trust in you when it's easier to follow other ways and help us fall at your feet in humility. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.